ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Is it time to start regulating AI? Well, the US President Joe Biden certainly thinks so. Yes, this week on Download This Show, the US has made some pretty big demands of the artificial intelligence industry. Exactly what is that going to mean for the future? We will find out. Also, Meta is introducing an ad-free subscription tier for things like Facebook, and we look at why one robot taxi company has kind of failed to launch. All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell, and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show, and our guest this week, the head of content at Biteside, Seamus Byrne. Welcome back. Good to be back, Mark. And Dr. Erica Mealy, lecturer in computer science at the University of Sunshine Coast. Definitely not USC, though, right, Erica? No, 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 not USC, UniSC. Come on, get with the program. UniSC. So, Seamus, let's start with you. There has been some big announcements about AI coming out of the US. Walk me through it. Yep. President Biden has signed a big fancy executive order, basically sending a signal to the artificial intelligence industry, uh, which of course has exploded over the last year, that the US government is watching closely about what's happening right now. And he's getting a whole range of different departments to actually start doing some really specific investigations into everything from you know what kinds of security risks could be attached through to consumer privacy implications, all this sort of stuff, really trying to now push forward with that idea of saying we need to get on the front foot as a regulatory uh, industry and actually govern this stuff. Is there anything, Seamus, in their remit that you think they've missed that they should be putting on the table? Um, look, I think that's actually, it's a good question. And I think that they will start to kind of get these different departments to you know, bring in some of that extra, extra expert help rather than just trying to, you know, make it up themselves based on uh, not really understanding it. Erica, your thoughts? Well, I find it really interesting that some of the commentators have been saying that this executive order doesn't have enough teeth because AI pictures can really have too many teeth. And so the fact that they picked the word teeth and not as a way. No. Too many teeth and not enough not fingers. Enough, not enough fingers, too many teeth, yeah. So, you know, I don't see that in their executive order. We want humans that look like real humans. And, you know, the pleasing part of it was alongside this executive order, they've also come out and talked about setting up a, a safety in AI and an ethics in a AI committee through their commerce department. So I think they really are going to try and put some strength behind it and hopefully eventually some regulation. But there is questions if it's just a PR exercise to kind of remind everyone that US are still a big player while the UK summit is going on at the same time, while the EU are looking at their act, China's already beat them out with regulations. So there's a few people that are a little bit cynical, but I think overall, hopefully it's a move in the right direction. What actually can be done in terms of regulating it at the moment, Erica? Because it's so worldwide and spread, I think part of the problem is we don't know what we don't know. There's no sort of understanding of what is the data being used for? Where is the data going? How are they going to then use it further? What are these training data sets? And how are they trying to future-proof the tools so we actually have some kind of consistency? 
so th there's some interesting concerns um, and hard to regulate, but I think until there is some kind of law that says you must or you shall not, uh, there won't be any kind of regulation or any kind of uh, holding back on what we're doing. What do, we, what do you think, Seamus? Yeah, look, I think regulation is also one of those really tricky points right now where there are a few companies that have exploded into the lead and they're also quite often being proponents of saying, yes, this is dangerous and we need to regulate. And a lot of people do feel like that's partly because they kind of feel like it's a lot easier for them to manage regulations now that they are, you know, gigantic com uh, companies that have swallowed up large percentages of the entire internet to you know, feed their training data right now. And it would be really nice to stop other companies from sort of chasing them down. So there are a lot of those kinds of aspects of regulatory capture that kind of get fed into that. You know, there are elements in some of these orders and codes of conduct and different things that are coming out where they're actually trying to say, if you're below a certain scale, we want to let you actually continue to, you know, run a little bit more freely for a while in the name of ensuring that we don't just end up with Google, with Microsoft, with OpenAI and just like, and Facebook basically controlling this whole next wave of technology after they've just controlled the last 20 years. I'm glad you brought that up. Erica, how have the big tech companies reacted to this announcement out of the White House? To be honest, I actually haven't seen a great deal of their reaction. But I think along the lines of OpenAI and, and many of the others have said, yes, we think it is very dangerous. So I would imagine that they're going to be supporting this, probably up until the point where someone says, actually, you've taken a whole pile of stuff you weren't supposed to take it out. Because the way the AI works, we don't know which decisions have come from where. So take it out means start from scratch. And I don't think they'll support that. But I think on the whole, they're keen to be able to be within regulation. And and like Seamus was saying, it's definitely something where now that they're the big fish, they get to control it a little bit more. On the whole, they're keen to be part of the discussion and maybe lead it into a direction that helps them in the long term. Was that your experience, Seamus? Do you think that they, they are going to react that way? Yeah, look, I, I think that's kind of you know, a good fit for what's going on. And again, especially when we're talking about different jurisdictions as well right now, you know, like literally, in, you know, in the same week as this announcement, we've had uh, the, the UK held a big AI summit with lots of countries involved and 20 something countries all, you know, signed an agreement as part of that. But of course, the EU is always expected to come in a lot stronger with these sorts of laws. And so I think right now, the American companies would probably find uh, these executive orders, you know, quite, quite nice in that, again, it's not pushing too hard. It's a about really kind of saying we're going to monitor harder and we're going to start studying more of what's going on here, but it still gives plenty of runway, whereas I could imagine that in the next few months we might see a lot stronger action out of the EU when it comes to actually what are you doing with people's data online and, yeah, that could kind of change the game in a lot of ways. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week, Seamus Byrne, Head of Content at Byteside, and Dr. Erica Mealy, a lecturer in computer science at the University of Sunshine Coast. Mark Fennell is my name. And we move now to Canada. Canada has announced it will ban the hugely popular app WeChat on government services, Erica. But why? 
Well, this is an interesting one because not only have they come out and said we're banning WeChat, which a lot of countries are seeing very similar to TikTok because they're Chinese owned. So they're seeing it as a security risk that we need to actually control. But they've also come out and mentioned Kaspersky, which is a Russian cybersecurity company as well. So they're not just targeting China. They're really starting to look at, well, what is available? What is potentially exposing this information? And uh, how do we actually deal with it? And uh, interestingly enough, Australia seems to be a little bit behind, as Mm. we were the last one of the, the sort of five eyes that we talk about, to ban TikTok. And despite the fact our Senate committee actually recommended back in August that we should also ban WeChat, we haven't done it yet. Seamus, good call or overreach? Look, I think one of the easiest answers about this whole thing, right, is that when it comes to, you know, what is an app for and then how does its security system work related to that task? WeChat is fundamentally a messaging app that does not support end-to-end encryption. It is genuinely set up in a way that means it is able to be comfortably monitored by the Chinese government. And so using it for general chats and whatever you might sort of think, I'm just going to connect with other people through this app, it makes total sense to not let this be on government devices. You know, I looked up sort of a quick background on the safety implications of the application. And, you know, it is you know noted for the fact that if people in China send messages to each other on WeChat and somebody says something that's negative to the government, that it will be removed from the app during that chat. Like, it is being directly monitored in those kinds of ways within that Chinese environment. Now, you know, they might sort of claim that it isn't monitored in the same ways all around the world, but it ultimately flows through centralised WeChat servers and doesn't have any encryption attached at all. So it makes total sense that this is not an app that you should be using when it comes to thinking you're having a private conversation with anybody. Are there other countries around the world that have banned WeChat? Because I know we've talked about TikTok, but are there other countries that have uh, banned or throttled WeChat around the world? Does anyone know? Yeah, I'm not sure, to be honest. I know TikTok has got a lot of news um, around its bans, and it's it's surprising that WeChat has been so far behind TikTok in that. They've really flown under that radar. Why, Why do you think that is, by the way? I'm not really sure, but the thing that gets me is that Elon Musk has actually said that he he wants X slash Twitter to become like WeChat. He wants it to be the everything app. And so whether it's, you know, just because it's been flying under the radar, whether that perhaps people in those environments, I mean, perhaps people were less likely to put it on their work devices. I mean, but I just know, why would you do that? It doesn't, like if you're working in a security intense environment, why would you put TikTok or WeChat or Facebook or Insta or any of those onto your onto your feed? I don't understand that at all. Do you think WeChat cares about this move, uh, Seamus? Um, look, yeah, WeChat is owned by Tencent and they are one of the biggest, certainly like game developers in the world, but uh, you know, as Erica was saying, that this is within its core market. It is this everything app these days. So I think, you know, like you can, you know, you can send payments to people. You can do all sorts of really useful functions through that app if you're in the kind of market where it is used by, you know, a really large percentage of the of the population. So you know, there are lots of reasons why it's it's great 
for uh, you know for its core markets, and its core markets happen to be the biggest markets in the world. So yeah, I think it's a bit of a blip by comparison. In fact, like probably the biggest issue, and again, this is government focused, so it's kind of not as widespread as it might otherwise be. But when there's often been talk about banning things like this, there is you know a reasonable problem with actually kind of causing problems for like Chinese folks who live outside of China and might need to use it to continue you know staying in touch with their family back home and all that sort of stuff so you know i think widespread bans not necessarily all that functional uh, or you know it becomes a problem for people whereas saying that people who work in government can't use it that really does sort of feel like a far more reasonable idea to when it comes to risk management Download this show is the name of the program. It is your guide to the week in media, technology, and culture. And uh, interesting news that Facebook and Instagram are launching subscriptions in most of Europe that will remove adverts from the platform. Now, hypothetically, Erica, if you had an option to have an ad-free experience of Facebook, would you take it? Interesting question. Um, uh, Honestly, I'm a bit of a cheapskate, so I'll probably just live with it. Also, I, like a number of my friends, uh, do tend to use pseudonyms on our Facebook accounts. So what it's tracking may not have any bearing on the reality. Uh, And so in that case, they can surf me whatever they like. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) I have a fundamental problem with you pay to have no ads or you leave the platform. Like, honestly, they're not great options. That's not what the EU consent laws are really about. They're really about do you choose to be part of this and do you want to continue to be part of it? Um, but it, it is interesting that they've come up with this idea. Seamus, do you, do you agree? I mean, I feel like I would try it for at least one month. Uh, that would be my take, just to at least get a good look at it and see how, how different does it feel. I know I'm one of those people who pays for uh, for YouTube Premium because it really does make a difference in your life if you're not seeing you know, a million Facebook ads, uh, sorry, uh, uh, YouTube ads. But yeah, I think with this one, the really sort of yeah, big thing here is exactly kind of like what Erica was mentioning. It's going to be so important for Facebook in its battle with, you know, how is it using the data of European citizens that they're trying to claim, well, if we give them the option to pay, that is effectively the opt-in or opt-out when it comes to being tracked for advertising. And I think we're pretty quickly seeing that uh, the EU itself is uh, looking to respond to that and basically say that is not the option at all. That is not the either or. And actually, people should be able to make a much more informed choice about saying, I don't think I should have to be tracked in order to stay in touch with all these other people who happen to use this same platform. So if you are in the EU, you'll end up paying around 10 euros per month for this ad-free experience. Erica, is how do you think that price point is going? Is it too expensive or not expensive enough? Well, it seems to be less than X and Twitter. That's always a good thing to be less than Twitter. Less than Twitter on every front would be great. <laughs> and TikTok, though, is is also a little bit on the cheaper side. So it seems to be about the, the middle of the road. Whether that's the, the best price point or not, it will be interesting to see. It's also interesting that if you pay via the app stores, you pay a premium because an amount has to go back to Google or to Apple. So they're actually saying please don't pay via the App Store, come and pay us directly, which is a a very um, interesting way to be able to say, oh, oh, yeah, but they're taking their slice. It's like, "Mm, yeah, but how many people did you pick up by being in that App Store? 
Do you think ultimately it will work? Because I, 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 okay, the reason I ask, Seamus, is because it feels like a thing that's been done in reaction to legislation rather than a thing that's been done for business reasons. Yeah, that's right. And so I think in that sense, this is probably framed around the idea that they know they're not going to make money from it. I think they're a very good company at getting data from experiments like this. They'll probably find some interesting demographic data out of you know, who does decide to opt in or out of this particular system. But, but I don't expect they're thinking that it's going to you know, replace it in any way, particularly with the idea that from March next year, they're even making it more complicated by saying that if you have a business account and your personal account, that those accounts will have separate uh, fees attached so that you'll have that first 10 euros a month and then you'll need to pay an extra six euros a month for each extra account that you run through your account setup. And again, that even feels like the kind of additional structures that will probably start to make you know, the EU authorities uh, even more annoyed at the fact that this is not the solution they were thinking uh, should be brought in for this kind of problem. This is uh, really interesting that they're, they're looking at doing this because after X has added its sub- subscription costs alongside all the other crazy changes that Elon has made, they've actually found that the primary user group in Twitter is now sports fans. So going from a, a very tech-heavy platform, suddenly it's the uh, you know people cheering on Major League Baseball that really can't do without Twitter. So it, it would be interesting to see, because they're talking about the number of users, Facebook and Instagram having increased with the death of Twitter how this actually works over on that platform. See, that doesn't actually surprise me at all because the last thing, the last live thing that people genuinely watch on television will be sport, right? So it kind of makes sense that the thing that has you have to engage with live and in real time, that's the last holdout for, for Twitter. In a sense, it doesn't overly surprise me, Erica. Seamus, what are your thoughts? Yeah, look, I think there's a really important sort of additional factor on this uh, Facebook EU uh, subscription offer, and that is the fact that uh, within days of this having been announced, and actually, you know, it should kick in this week, uh, is the fact that actually the European Data Protection Board has issued a decision that actually says that Facebook and Instagram can not continue to use private data to target their behavioural advertising. This is going to sort of become, I think, a very big talking point, I'm sure, in sort of coming weeks on how Meta responds to the fact that the EU has now effectively said that you are banned from using uh, data to actually target behavioural advertising uh, on your customers. And it could have a huge impact on their ability to, to sell ads in Europe. Download the show is the name of the program. And (laughs) what happens when a robot taxi or RoboTaxi, service decides to shut down in the name of trust, or so it seems. Uh, Seamus, talk me through what's happened with a US company called Cruise. Uh, so, yeah, most of the kind of the headline reports have pointed out that that Cruise is voluntarily pausing its autonomous uh, fleet of robo-taxis, which have heavily been driving around San Francisco over recent months because they want to make sure, they want to sort of, quote, you know, earn public trust 
and sort of restore some faith in their operations. Uh, I mean, it also just happens that a couple of days before they announced that they would voluntarily do this, that the California DMV suspended their robo-taxi permit effective immediately. <laughs> unrelated, unrelated fact, surely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, they look, they have operations in a couple of other cities, I think, you know, that have allowed this sort of testing. So they are definitely pausing in some places that they were allowed to continue. Uh, but it, it's pretty dramatic given that it was just August that California expanded their allowance to to run robo-taxis in San Francisco. What does this mean for the future of, I mean, not just driverless cars, but sort of robo-taxis in particular? Because I do think that it's one of those ideas that sounds great, but actually in practice there's a whole bunch of unexpected kinks in the story, Erica. It's definitely something I was genuinely shocked when I first heard about it, that San Francisco were willingly letting their citizens basically be crash test dummies for these these vehicles. There's, you know, this poor woman was dragged 20 feet, apparently, underneath the robo-taxi. Oh, my God. And, I mean, allegedly, it's horrific. And allegedly, though, it was caused by another human driver. But they've hit trees. They've hit uh, fire engines. There's, I think, my favourite part though of the whole shenanigan is that uh, there was a guerrilla protest movement that discovered that you could disable the taxis by putting a traffic cone on their bonnet. So there were people riding around San Francisco and putting traffic cones on bonnets of cars to try and protest the uh, the robo taxis. Look, I really think it's going to put a significant dent in the idea and. I was shocked that they came to 24-7 so quickly. The idea of a, a 3 a.m. when there's no other cars on the road seemed to be quite a sensible idea. Let's get drunk drivers out of their cars. Let's get people into these vehicles. And if they are the only vehicles around, then you really are constraining the independent variables. You're really locking it down from that, that you know, computer-centred uh, design perspective. But I think it's going to take a while to be able to recover. And I don't think anyone believes that this is more than a PR exercise. Oh, we're volunteering it for trust. Uh, no, <laughs> you were banned. And this is not for trust, but good try. Good try, marketing department. So what would it actually take? Like, If we take it on face value, Seamus, what would it actually take to rebuild trust in, in a service like this? I mean, yeah, there's definitely a, a, a bit of a going back to square one element here of, you know, getting back to basics on the way in which these things are being tested and the kinds of inputs, uh, you know, like Eric was saying about controlling your variables. It's like, what are the inputs that these are actually responding to? Because, you know, that idea that uh, there's like there's been lots of these second order effects when it comes to the way that that they've been involved in accidents. So you know that uh, fire engine incident. It was the fact that it you know it was driving into an intersection where it had a green light. So it was making all of the normal assumptions, but it somehow wasn't noticing or hearing that there's a fire engine steaming through this intersection. And that's how you know that a robo taxi was never raised with Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> that's right. But also, is it possible to actually get to that stage, Erica, without having cars on the road? Well, there was a, a talk I went to many, many years ago, which the RACQ were discussing, and, and they firmly believed that 
the only way to commingle autonomous cars and people was to have them physically divided. So in sunny Queensland, we have our busways that are completely removed from the road. And so if the autonomous vehicles were able to use some of these ones where you're limiting the uh, chaos that humans cause, then possibly it could happen. But then at the same time, if you're making them go on a busway, why don't you get on a bus? So there's, there's those questions that it raises. But, you know, do we divide the motorway so that there is an autonomous vehicle lane and uh, or things like that? Take them out of city centres, perhaps, where there's lots of people, lots of cars and lots of unpredictable events that are going to happen. But, uh, yeah, downtown San Francisco has a lot to try and grapple with to work out if they can make this work. But one of the essential pictures of uh, driverless cars is that if you have enough driverless cars on the road, they will be more efficient because they'll understand the roads better and they'll be able to produce less traffic in time. Like if you start to give them their own lane, are you... Uh, I mean, I kind of see the logic of it, like in the short term, but it feels like it does. it doesn't help in the long term, Erica. Yeah, it's a hard one because... We, we really need to constrain those variables. They're not good, like Samus was saying, they're not good at uh, sort of unexpected outcomes and unexpected events. And, you know, ideally, yes, it would actually be better. We can actually have uh, intelligent and smart cities that, you know, the car starts to brake early or doesn't extra accelerate coming up to a red light that's about to change. So there's lots of great things we can do with it. But uh, they, at the time they were talking about it, and I sort of agreed, Aussies love driving. Like we just enjoy. We have old cars that we take out only on the weekend. We love for going for a drive up the coast or down the coast. And uh, if you are proposing to an Australian that you're going to make them only work in an autonomous car, I don't know that that would actually happen. Uh, the other thing as well, we have a lot of really long distances. And so I remember when they first brought over the, the BMW uh, electric cars, we said, oh, so can you drive to Sydney on a charge? And they looked at us like we had foreheads and went, why would you want to do that? You know, that's 12 hours away. And we said, oh yeah, but you know, Queenslanders do that. That's fine. Like, why wouldn't you? And we discovered you could get as far as coughs before you had to stop overnight, <laughs> which is <laughs> not great. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think a lot of these people making these systems don't understand the Australian context, but this idea of autonomous road trains. So, you know, improving our trucking safety, that's, that's something that's got legs. Or wheels, as the case may well be. Well, true. Yeah, wheels. This is something that has wheels. Um I don't know if that works as a saying, but I think that uh, it's something that we could consider. But yeah, I think the downtown use case is going to be extra hard. It's a one or the other. You either have vehicles that are autonomous or vehicles with people. And I think even in the context of passengers and pedestrians and people, there's a lot of the city centres that are moving to no vehicles, full stop, and having those kind of concession charges and, and congestion charges and not letting the cars intermix with people, let alone autonomous ones. So we have to think about that context too. Just so we're absolutely clear, Neve, the producer, shook her head so hard at me when I made the wheels reference. Seamus, do you think the idea of, for lack of a better term, segregating uh, driverless cars from driver-full cars makes sense? Yeah, certainly in that in the the way that we do have yeah you know, bike paths and bus lanes and all these sorts of things i think that idea of sharing sort of yeah you know, bus lanes could be good within a certain volume context but the thing that really does strike me about sort of all of this testing that's happened is when i think 
you know, maybe there's a lot of sort of lessons that have been learned and data that could have been gained, but then you have to stop and realise these are private companies who are not sharing their data. And I feel like that is perhaps the thing that we need to revisit is if we're going to let these people test these kinds of vehicles in public spaces, then they should be doing it in a way that actually elevates the entire autonomous vehicle industry and that they have to share their data publicly and create, you know, a much more of a, you know, a a public open source sort of sense of how these things are working and what they've been learning through these processes. And especially when there's been any kind of an incident at all, because that should be the kind of process here. If we're going to let them do this, then they should be getting better much faster. But if it's just private companies being allowed to do this and keep that data to themselves, then actually, yeah, we we will ban them in this case and then none of us will be better for it. And with that, we are out of time. Huge thank you to our panellists this week. Seamus Byrne, Head of Content at Byteside, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you. And Dr. Erica Mealy, Lecturer in Computer Science at the University of the Sunshine Coast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure as always. And with that, I should leave you. My name is Mark Fennell and I'll catch you next week for another episode of Download This Show. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.